It's 6 p.m., and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, March 28th, and this is your KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jem. Joyce Miller returns next week. Coming up, the California Report covers a new California bill that works to increase oil industry transparency, which could include the enforcement of penalties on oil companies that are making excessive profit from gas prices. Then, after a look at regional headlines and the weather, KVMR's Paul Emery sits down with retired Fed economist Gary Zimmerman to discuss the Federal Reserve's recent decision to continue raising their target interest rate. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. State lawmakers have approved Governor Newsom's bill, which is attempting to increase transparency of the oil industry in the state. It would allow the California Energy Commission to impose penalties through a regulatory process if the agency believes oil companies are making excessive profits from gas prices. Here's Bay Area Assemblywoman Nancy Skinner during yesterday's assembly hearing. The amount we were charged for a gallon of gasoline was higher than charged to anyone in any other state. Now, some of you may think, well, that's normal. It is not normal when, on average, that higher price was $2.61 higher than what other states paid. But Eloy Garcia, a lobbyist for the Western States Petroleum Association, says the problem is supply and not the oil companies. The bill that you're rushing through the process adds bodies, adds bureaucracy at the California Energy Commission, adds audit requirements, adds penalties. What it does not do is add supply. Governor Newsom is expected to sign the bill this week. California's crisis support centers want to better serve Native Americans in need. But right now, less than 1% of calls to the 988 crisis line are from Native people. Cap Radio's healthcare reporter Kate Wolf has the details. California has the largest number of American Indian and Alaska Native people in the U.S., up to 1.4 million when counting people of mixed race. The group has the second highest rate of suicide in the state, behind white people. Virginia Hendrick directs the California Consortium for Urban Indian Health. She says Native people may not be calling 988 because of cultural differences in how they express feelings of distress. Many of us have a cultural belief that Once you speak about something, you're speaking life into it. You speak power into it. Assemblymember James Ramos believes many Native people experience psychological pain related to historical trauma, and counselors must be aware of that. Having the infrastructure is important because we need to know um, when someone calls that they're reaching out and talking to somebody that they can relate to. Ramos supports creating a 988 option for Native callers to be linked with Native volunteers. That model is already in place in Washington state. For the California Report, I'm Kate Wolf. If you or someone you know is in crisis, help is available by calling 988. A state task force developing proposals to provide reparations for Black Californians is nearing the end of its work. The panel met in Sacramento earlier this month, and it faces a June deadline to send recommendations to the legislature to compensate Black residents for the harms dating back to slavery. And the California state legislature, well, it has its own pro-slavery history. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarotti dove into that and joins me now. 
Guy, most kids in California learn in the fourth grade that the state entered the Union in 1850 as a free state. What was the role of slavery in California's founding? Yeah, so slavery was a foundational issue in California's entrance into the Union. California was admitted as part of this compromise between supporters of slavery, opponents of slavery, the Compromise of 1850. And at California's Constitutional Convention, this was debated. Um, The delegates ultimately did ban slavery in California, but we know from historians that, you know, before statehood, hundreds of enslaved black people were brought to the state, many to dig for gold during the gold rush. And what are some of the ways in which the state legislature supported the expansion of slavery? So first, the California Fugitive Slave Act passed in 1852, really at the behest of a lot of supporters of slavery in the legislature. As historian Stacy Smith told me, if you were a slave brought to California at the height of the gold rush, like 1849, you could basically be captured and extradited all the way until 1855. So just this like era of terror for black people living in the state, even though it was technically a free state. The second action I looked at took place in 1854. And this was a resolution uh, passed by the legislature in support of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So that was a federal law that allowed the expansion of slavery into new territories. Super controversial. It was a huge spark for the Civil War. And the California legislature actually supported it. And then, you know, beyond those two actions, there's the fact that we know there were California legislators who held slaves. I looked at one state senator, James Estill. He was instrumental in getting the California Fugitive Slave Act passed. At the same time, he was enslaving more than a dozen people at his farm in Solano County. Wow. And you tracked down one of James Estill's descendants, right? That's right. So this is this guy named Sean Ryan. uh, Had a pretty unique upbringing. He says he spent a lot of time in his childhood in what he described as a religious cult. So by the time he got out of that and finally enrolled in high school, he really didn't have any sense of U.S. history. He told me about learning of the Trail of Tears and the first time he was in a U.S. history class and just breaking down crying because he had like never heard of any, you know, any of the history, what the U.S. government had done to Native people. And just he was came in kind of totally unaware of U.S. history. Um, So after that, he became hooked. He did a lot of research into his own family history. That's how we learned about his great, great, great grandfather, James Estill, that slaveholding state senator, who, by the way, also founded San Quentin Prison. Crazy. And how are lawmakers who are currently serving in the legislature grappling with this history? Yeah, it's been crickets for the most part, honestly. Uh, I talked to State Senator Stephen Bradford. He also serves on the Reparations Task Force. He said he hasn't heard from a single legislator about this interim report that the Reparations Task Force put out. He even said, I doubt if anyone's taken much time to read it. Um, And this report details not just like, you know, the history, all the institutional racism black people face in California, but also some recommendations. And we actually have seen some of those recommendations, you know, reflected in some bills introduced in the legislature this year. That includes bills to remove language from California's constitution, which allows for involuntary servitude, and also another bill that would let Californians in state prison vote. So we'll definitely be watching the outcome of of a few of those bills. Awesome. Thanks, Guy. My pleasure. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 846 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. The James Irvine Foundation. Accepting nominations now for the 2024 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes 11th Hour Racing, working to connect sustainability with sport 
to help restore ocean health on the web at 11thHourRacing.org. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, March 28th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In regional news, a two-vehicle collision in the area of Brunswick Road and Highway 174 resulted in the death of an 80-year-old Grass Valley woman on Monday, March 27th. That's according to a press release led by Public Information Officer Jason Bryce of Grass Valley, California Highway Patrol. Just after 3 p.m. on Monday, CHP received calls of a two-vehicle crash near the intersection of Brunswick Road at Highway 174 in the unincorporated Nevada County area of Cedar Ridge. Officers arrived with other emergency personnel to find the woman, who was driving a 2006 Mercedes, trapped inside of her vehicle. In the release, Bice stated that despite the efforts of medical personnel, the female was pronounced deceased at the scene. Her identity has not been released. According to the press release, the other driver was Gerald Nelson, 81, of Colfax. As he approached the intersection of Highway 174 while driving westbound on Brunswick Road, he, quote, failed to turn his Dodge at the sharp right curve leading to the limit line at the intersection, and instead continued straight over the double yellow lines, crossing into the eastbound lane. Officers determined Nelson to be under the influence of alcohol at the time of the crash, and he was arrested for felony DUI charges. The release stated that he was booked into the Nevada County Jail after being treated for minor injuries. That's all from the union. UBANET reports that the California Department of Fish and Wildlife has announced the safe and successful capture and collar of two gray wolves in Siskiyou County. The two wolves were captured March 17th, fitted with satellite collars, measured and sampled for DNA and disease surveillance, and safely released back into the wild. The capturing and collaring of gray wolves is a management and research practice, and, along with other tools and methods, is used throughout the West to help monitor populations, understand landscape use patterns, and minimize livestock conflicts. In Siskiyou County, ground capture attempts to collar additional wolves will resume later this spring. At approximately 6.30 p.m. on Monday, the Nevada County Sheriff's Office Regional Dispatch Center received a call from a person reporting the discovery of severely decomposed human remains near Interstate 80 east of Truckee. KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza spoke with Leslie Williams, the Nevada County Sheriff's Office Public Information Officer, to learn more. I understand that the reporting call came in yesterday, Monday, in the evening, but the bulk of the investigation is happening today. Tell me about that. We did respond to the area uh, to start the initial investigation along with the California Highway Patrol. As it began to get dark, they secured the area, cordoned off uh, a region around the discovery as if it were a crime scene just to preserve the integrity of the, the area where the remains were found. And then we stayed at the scene throughout the night. We had a deputy on scene throughout the night until daylight when the investigation continued this morning. We were also waiting for teams from the FBI evidence response team, uh, some anthropologists from the Chico State Human Identification Lab, along with our Nevada County Search and Rescue Evidence Recovery Team to do a thorough search of the area to, to find any potential evidence um, or any information that could be related to the discovery. Is this being investigated as a possible homicide? It's way too preliminary to know that at this time. Because of the advanced state of decomposition of the remains. There will have to be additional forensic testing. Uh, It's still very early in the investigation, but that will certainly be something to be considered as they move forward. Can you tell me what happens next, what the next steps are in an investigation like this? It's still very active and ongoing this morning. They were literally still processing the scene. So um, it's just too early to, to 
speculate what the next steps will be. Obviously, have to uh, have to wait on forensic pathologist reports to come in, and then obviously they would begin to look at any missing persons reports that could you know, potentially be correlated to the discovery. Uh, but again, it's just, it's very preliminary at this time. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, rain and snow showers, mainly before 9 p.m., low around 33. South-southeast wind, 10 to 16 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 22 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 80%. New snow accumulation of less than half an inch possible. Wednesday, rain and snow showers becoming all rain after 11 a.m. Some thunder is also possible. High near 43. South-southeast wind 10 to 15 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 22 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 80%. New snow accumulation of less than half an inch possible. Wednesday night, rain showers likely, mixing with snow after 8 p.m., then gradually ending. Some thunder is also possible. Patchy fog after 5 a.m., widespread frost after 5 a.m., otherwise mostly cloudy with a low around 30. East wind 5 to 9 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 60%. Little or no snow accumulation expected. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, snow mainly before 11 p.m. The snow could be heavy at times. Low around 15. Breezy, with a southwest wind 15 to 25 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 35 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 90%. New snow accumulation of 5 to 9 inches possible. A winter storm and avalanche warning is in effect from 5 a.m. today until 5 a.m. tomorrow, March 29th. Wednesday. Snow showers likely, mainly after 11 a.m. Partly sunny with a high near 34. South wind, 10 to 15 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 70%. New snow accumulation of 1 to 2 inches possible. Wednesday night. Snow showers likely, mainly before 11 p.m. Mostly cloudy with a low around 15. Southwest wind 5 to 10 miles per hour, becoming northeast in the evening. Chance of precipitation is 70%. New snow accumulation of around an inch possible. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, a chance of showers before 9 p.m., then a chance of showers after midnight. Mostly cloudy with a low around 44. South-southeast wind 10 to 15 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 20 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 40%. New precipitation amounts of less than a tenth of an inch possible. Wednesday. A chance of showers, then showers, and possibly a thunderstorm after 11 a.m. High near 53. South-southeast wind, 13 to 18 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 26 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 90%. New rainfall amounts between a half and three quarters of an inch are possible. Wednesday night. A chance of showers and thunderstorms before 8 p.m., then a chance of showers between 8 p.m. and 11 p.m., Mostly cloudy with a low around 42. Southeast wind 6 to 9 miles per hour becoming north after midnight. Chance of precipitation is 40%. New precipitation amounts between a tenth and a quarter of an inch, except higher amounts possible in thunderstorms. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Last week, Fed Chair Jay Powell held a press conference discussing the Federal Reserve's recent decision to continue raising their target interest rate. In this week's economic report, KVMR's Paul Emery and retired Fed economist Gary Zimmerman look to answer the questions of how this decision was made and why. 
This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kelb, Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkelb.com. Well, Gary, that was a good call on the Federal Reserve on interest rates last week. So let's start today with how much the Fed increased their interest rate target. Well, Paul, at uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell's press conference after their March meeting last week, he explained why the Fed decided to continue raising their target interest rate. It's called the federal funds interest rate on overnight loans between banking institutions and financial institutions. The Fed policymakers decided to raise the short-term target interest rate by only 25 basis points or a quarter of a percentage point, uh, moving it up to a range of four and three quarters to five percent. Um, but when one has to remember that only uh, that's only about half of the increase that um, most forecasters and um, and economists were expecting um, before the bank failures in recent weeks. Well, Gary, do you think that this will be the last Federal Reserve interest rate increase this year? And if so, why why is that? That's a very important question, Paul. Um, But this is actually an easy one to uh, answer for me because the Fed policymakers also published their March published their March projections for the economy for the years 2023, uh, 2024 and 2025. Uh, They've already answered what they think things will be um, at year end. And their median projection for the target short-term interest rate was 5.1%, meaning that most, but not necessarily all of the policymakers expect rates to be another quarter percent percentage point higher by year in 2023. Um, they, they do expect it by the year in 2024 to come down to about 4.3%. Quick question. Can you tell if this was a close decision or not among the dozen policymakers voting at the meeting? Paul, all of the voting members supported the decision to raise interest rates by one quarter of a percentage point. Uh, The votes of the individual policymakers are also reported in the policy statement that's issued just after the meeting. And they're posted. um, That's posted on the Fed's website after the meeting. Well, Gary, after the meeting, the Fed chairman also did a press conference. So why why was that? Well, Paul, listeners might have seen the press conference on the evening news uh, <laughs> last Wednesday on the 22nd. After each decision, the Fed chair uses the press conference to discuss why the policy decision was made, you know, what what economic and financial conditions are affecting the economy and, you know, why that's how that's affecting what they think is going to happen and what they need to do with policy. And so it's an important part of transparency that the Fed and other central banks do today to try and you know help folks understand what's going on. Gary, it seems to me like the Fed policymakers faced a difficult and important decision last week. Yes, Paul, I think this was a particularly important decision because it signaled sort of the Fed's policy focus, whether it was going to be directed towards inflation, fighting inflation or boosting financial stability or, you know, <laughs> offsetting the risk of a recession. Um, and, you know, given all of the, those, those factors and potential risks, this was important uh, signal for the financial markets and, and the economy. Um, so the, the policy statement that was published just after the meeting reported that the economy has continued to grow modestly. The job grant gains had 
picked up and and remains strong. You know, and, this, uh, and the unemployment rate remains low. It's still below what the Fed policymakers consider to be full employment. That's around four percent or under. Um, so that's basically all good news. The the bad news basically would be the financial stability issues and the fact that the inflation rate remains elevated, around five or six percent depending on the measures. Um, that's down, but still well above the Fed's two percent inflation goal. Well, Gary, how much do you think that the recent banking failures and concerns were considered in the Fed's decision? Oh, of course, I, I would seriously consider it. I think the, there's a lot of uncertainty, though, about you know what, what the effects are and what we'll, what we'll see in terms of how strong those effects are over time. Um, those you know, recent bank turmoil and uh, the Fed needed to consider you know, how their decision to raise interest rates would again affect the safety and soundness of the banking and financial system. And, uh, you know, so the higher interest rates um, will, you know, tighten lending standards. And so will the um, bank failures and the turmoil that we've seen in the banking system will also tighten lending standards. And both of those together would be expected to slow the economy and inflation. The question for the Fed right now is, and they just don't know, I think, and the chairman said as much in his press conference, you know, how much? And they just, you know, can't tell yet. Too early to tell. So one more question, Gary. What would be an important takeaway from the information about the meeting? Let me give you a couple. Uh, the Fed faced a difficult decision. Lower inflation, stabilize banks, avoid a recession. If they focused mostly on financial stability and, and held interest rates steady, that would you know, suggest that they were putting their efforts to slow inflation on hold. And you know, that might you know, lead to <laughs> expectations of inflation rising. Then they, they certainly don't want to see that or didn't want to see that. If they focused mostly on inflation and raise interest rates, uh, uh, had they raised interest rates by a half a percent to slow the economy, you know, that would put additional, you know, pressure to slow inflation, but it would also um, likely affect financial stability and and even the probability, higher the probability of a recession. So instead, uh, it looks like the Fed chose a middle path, raising rates by a lesser amount, only one quarter of a percent rather than a half a percent, uh, hoping to continue to slow inflation, um, but you know, not raising rates enough to further contribute to this disruption of the banking system or dramatically slow the economy. So I think the, the final takeaway is the Fed will be closely monitoring emerging trends in the economy um, to see just sort of where things are headed from here, given all of the changes that they've you know, faced in the, and policy decisions they've had to make in recent weeks. Well, that's a lot of information, Gary. Uh, Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge with KVMR. Thank you, Paul. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. That's our newscast for this Tuesday, March 28th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from the Nevada City Farmers Market, Saturdays 9 a.m. to 1 through April 8th at Sierra Academy of Expeditionary Learning, 505 Main Street. Featuring sustainably grown food from local farmers, crafts, live music, also EBT accepted, ncfarmersmarket.org. Thanks for listening and stay safe. I'm Julia Jem.